Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 4 and going to verse 6. Again, I'd like to uh, extend uh, my appreciation to Pastor for this opportunity to minister this morning and to bring forth uh, the word. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And for the next few minutes, I'd like to preach to you on the thought, one baptism. One baptism. It's going to be a bit of a Bible study this morning, so keep your Bibles out. Uh, keep your tablets or phones out um, if you're not going to be going on social media. Uh, but unless you're going to share it, right? Share the good news while you're on social media. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence that's in this place, Lord. We thank you for moving throughout the worship, throughout the praise, God. We thank you, Lord, for these children that were dedicated and the wonderful moment that took place with the Wong family. I pray, Lord, uh, that your presence would be in this place, Lord, that you would minister to us today, that our hearts would be open to receive from your word, Lord, that our minds would be able to pay attention to what you have for us today, Lord. Speak to us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. One, baptism. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Is there life after death? Is this really all there is? These are questions that have plagued the human conscience for millennia, and many claim to have closed the book on such questions. So sure of themselves that all the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed that they have declared that there is no longer a need for religion. Stephen Hawking, a famous theoretical physicist and cosmo cosmologist who recently passed away, had this to say about the subject. I believe the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to profound re uh, realization that there probably is no heaven and no afterlife either. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe, and for that I am extremely grateful. We are taught that this man's belief is a basic reality, something that we must accept. A few years ago, atheists in the UK sponsored an ad campaign that ran on buses which said, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. But if that's true, then why do those questions persist in our conscience? Despite the grandiose claims of re religion's demise, if it is true that we can stop worrying and just live our life, that there's no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell, then why is it that these questions remain with us? C.S. Lewis offered a counterpoint to the claim of naturalists, those who believe that nature is all that exists. When he wrote this, he said, if the whole universe has no meaning, we should have never found out that, there, that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe, therefore there were no creatures with eyes, we should never know that it was dark. Dark would be without meaning. Basically, what Lewis's point is, is that if there was no reason for the existence of the universe, then there is a knock-on effect. It doesn't just end there. 
If there is no reason for the universe or no meaning for the universe to exist, then there is no ultimate meaning for your life and for my life. There is no real purpose, real substantial purpose for our life. And because atheists know that you can't live in a world like that, they invent their own meaning. They invent their own purpose. And they feel strong in that, that, hey, I created my own meaning. I created my own purpose. Just consider the final sentence of Hawking's quote. We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I am extremely grateful. What does that even mean in a world, in a universe that is a cosmic accident? What does that sentence mean in a universe that just came into being out of nothing? In a world that is only based on the survival of our species, how is it that you can be grateful for anything? Where our emotions are just the result of chemicals firing in our brain, how is it that we can have meaning and that we can have purpose? Surely there has to be something more than just nature. Surely there has to be something more than just meets the eye. There is a reason that belief in an afterlife is central to almost every religion and civilization. It, is so, it isn't solely because people are scared of death, though many people are scared to death or scared of death. It isn't solely because of that, but there seems to be a belief innate in each and all of us that that there is more to this life, that this life is not all there is. We also understand that there are things in the world that are self-evidently good and evil. If the universe had no meaning, then what could we call good and what could we call evil? Yet we seem to all agree that something is good and something is evil. We often look outside ourselves to describe what is evil, but the Bible doesn't really give us that luxury. In Psalm 14, the psalmist declares, and, and, and this was later echoed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, Psalm 17 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They, are, they have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understands, who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No not one. You see, without God, the Bible declares that none of us are indeed good. Recently, I've been reading a book called The Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It is a first-hand account of the darkness which uh, saw uh, untold millions murdered in the USSR. This book blew open the facade of the communist state that had created uh, a, um, a, a feeling that everything was good and, and great in the USSR. This, this blew up the facade. And it is shocking, this book. Uh, it's not light reading at all. But what I have found most shocking in, in, in the events of this book is that the evils committed were done by common men. It wasn't just special men and special women that did these terrible things, but it was a common person that did such evil. Solzhenitsyn addresses this phenomenon when he wrote, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to se separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line 
dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? This insight gained by Solzhenitsyn through years and years of torture and, and hard labor and imprisonment mirrors what Paul wrote about himself to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 7, he says, For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. You see, the Apostle Paul admits that there are times that he finds himself not doing the good that he knows to do, but is in fact committing the very evil that he detests, that he hates. Why is this? It's because there is a capacity in each and every one of us to do good, but there is also an equal capacity in each and every one of us to do evil. And it's so much easier to revert to sinful behaviors, to, to revert to the sin that we have been saved from. And this is coming from the leader of the apostolic church. This isn't just some Joe Blow sitting on a pew somewhere, but this is one of the main leaders of the apostolic church. And he's saying this is the struggle that he is currently fighting. You see, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You are not exempt from sin. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You are not exempt from the battle that rages within. There will never be a day where you are no longer tempted and drawn away from what God wants you to do. But it is our desire to continue to follow after God. Amen? Amen. This is why Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he told them to watch and pray so that they wouldn't get into temptation. And he qualifies it. He says, why? Because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. So many of us have a willing spirit that wants to do good, that wants to help others, that wants to be a blessing to others, but our flesh is weak and we creep back to the things that we shouldn't be doing. We creep back to that sin. And so Jesus says, the way you overcome that is you need to watch and pray. You need to watch and pray. Don't just watch and don't just pray, but you need to watch and pray. Hallelujah. If you want to overcome the sin that's been tripping you up, you need to be alert and you need to be in prayer. It's not enough just to pray every day, but you need to be alert throughout the day, watchful, seeing what is happening, seeing the temptation that is taking place. Watch and pray. Amen. So if this battle rages within a man who has a relationship with God, how much more in those of us who have not been saved? How much more is this battle waging for those of us who have not been saved? In Acts 26, this same Apostle Paul who wrote to the church in Rome shared his powerful testimony. He was a strict practicing Jew and, and he was uh, uh, someone who punished the followers of Jesus. And he was traveling to a city called Damascus when he was going to punish some more followers of Jesus. He was blinded by a great light. And Jesus revealed himself to Paul in that moment, and he called him to become a minister. He called him to be a follower of Jesus, to minister to the nations in that moment. 
while he was blind, a man named Ananias was directed by God to minister to him. You can imagine that Ananias would be hesitant as uh, the man he was going to see had quite a reputation. And he was being sent to Ananias' hometown to kill him, along with other, other followers of Jesus. And yet, he responded to the call of God, and he went and saw Paul. He went to his house. He ministered to him. His eyes were miraculously healed when Ananias prayed over him. And the Bible says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. Then Ananias said this to Paul, as recorded in Acts 22, verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Why are you waiting, Paul? Arise, get to the water, get baptized and have your sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. It wasn't enough for Paul to go to church or to have an encounter with Jesus. He had an encounter with Jesus. He had heard the teaching. He was ministered to. He even experienced the miraculous, but that wasn't enough. He had to be born again. It wasn't enough for him to just have faith in Jesus, but he had to be born again. God wanted to deal with his sin in that moment. God wanted to deal with the evil that Paul was committing in a very, very specific way. He had to experience what the Bible calls salvation, being saved from a life of sin. So what does it mean to be born again? In John chapter 3, a man by the name of Nicodemus visited Jesus at night. The reason he came at night was because he was a very religious man amongst the Jews, and he didn't want to be seen spending time with Jesus, who the Jews did not consider to be a good person. He was worried about what his peers would be saying about him. But he greeted Jesus with a compliment, and listen how Jesus responds to him in verse 3 of John chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus didn't muck about. He went right to the heart of the matter. <laughs> Nicodemus, I know you've come to talk to me about something else, but I want to tell you what is really important. Truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus was like, what are you talking about being born again? Am I going to climb back into my mother's womb and come back out? I mean, I'm a grown man. That's not going to happen. You know, I might be simple, but I'm not that simple. Come on now. And in verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus was saying, yeah, just like when you were born of water and of the Spirit, you were in the womb in a sack of water, and as you were birthed out of the womb, in order for you to be born alive, you had to breathe. There was spirit that entered into you. Just as that took place in the natural, the same must take place in the spiritual. You must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. This is the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. You must be born again of the water and of the Spirit. The, the Apostle Peter explained what Jesus was talking about uh, when he was preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
after the people gathered there asked him what they needed to do to be saved, to go to heaven, Peter answered them in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2, and he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You see a parallel there. You see baptism, which is water, and you see receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is spirit, born again of the water and of the spirit. It matches perfectly with what Jesus told them in John chapter 3. And you notice how Peter didn't lead them through a sinner's prayer in that moment or call them to believe on Jesus as their Savior. Both of those things are wonderful. It's wonderful to pray a sinner's prayer and to believe on Jesus as your Savior. That is fantastic. It exemplifies your faith and your belief in Peter, but uh, faith in Jesus, not Peter. But Peter was very specific. Amen? Amen? He was very specific in that moment. And he starts by calling them to repent. He starts by calling them to repentance. Why does Peter do that? You see, he was echoing the minister, the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus himself, who went about teaching and preaching repentance, the importance of turning to God, repenting of your sins. They constantly preached about the necessity of repentance all throughout the gospel. Repent means to make a decision to change. When we decide to repent, we are making a decision to change, to recognize that we have been going about things the wrong way, that we have been living and our lives are directed in the wrong direction when we make the decision to repent. In that moment, we are asking God for his forgiveness of our sins. Sometimes the hardest part in life is admitting that we are wrong. Especially for men, sometimes it's very difficult for us to admit that we are wrong and that we are in need of help. But that is what repentance calls us to do. It calls us to admit that we are wrong and that we are in need of a Savior, that we are in need of Jesus. Shedding the decades of sin and justification of our wrongdoing and coming to an abrupt moment in time where we make that decision that we are going to change. It's comparable to, to someone who makes the decision to stop smoking or someone who decides to go on, on, on a, a major weight loss journey. It's a very emotional moment, but it is a moment that must take place for change to occur. You have to come to that point where you are sick of living the way that you've been living and getting the results that you have been getting and you make that decision. I don't want to do this anymore. I want change. I want real change. I want God in my life. I want God in my family. I don't want to stay the same way. And that applies to each and every one of us because each and every day we can make that decision to repent and to turn away from the things that are drawing us away from God. And we can come back to the Father and say, Jesus, I don't want to live this way anymore. But I want to turn my life around. I want to make this decision. I want my life to change. And you see the results of those decisions, the really strong, informed decisions months later and years later, you see an incredible result. You see these videos of people making this decision. They say, look how hard I worked over the last six months. And it's amazing the change that takes place after one decision. What could happen with the help of the Holy Spirit 
if you make that decision today? What could happen in your life? What could happen in the dysfunction in your family if you make that one decision today? It starts, it starts today. I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to change my thought process. I'm going to change my mind and follow after Jesus. Amen. Then he tells every one of them, Peter tells every one of them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Notice how he said specifically to every one of you. I don't know how many times I've read that passage, how many times I've preached this passage, and for some reason that just popped open to me today. Every one of you. He was specifically talking to everyone that was gathered that day. There were no qualifiers. There were no exemptions. There were no, you have great faith, but you know, if you don't want to get baptized and you're embarrassed, fine, you don't need to. No, there were no exemptions, but it was meant for every person gathered there on that day. And the same applies to us in March 2021. We must be baptized, amen, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins. Nowhere in the Bible do the apostles teach that baptism is optional for a believer. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about that baptism is a way of furthering their journey or joining a church. No, baptism is commanded throughout Scripture. Read the book of Acts. You can read it for yourself. And that's why I'm, I'm saying we're going to go through Scripture today because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want the Bible to, to, to be the one that is speaking to you today, not me. Not this young man, but I want the word of God to speak to your heart today. Amen. Time and time again, baptism is preached as a necessary act of faith. A necessary act of faith. John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus, preached repentance and baptism. Not just repentance, but repentance and baptism. Jesus preached about repentance and baptism. Not just repentance, but repentance and baptism. Jesus taught this in Mark 16, 16, when he said, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And people have jumped on the second part of that and said, well, it's just about belief. Yeah. I mean, you have to believe in Jesus in order to be baptized or else you're just going for a swim. You're just getting wet. Belief in Jesus is necessary to be baptized. Of course, you have to have faith in him. You have to have belief in him for anything to take place. But that doesn't excuse the fact that he says you must believe and be baptized to be saved. Yeah. Belief or faith is absolutely required. I mean, I often tell this joke in New Life Journey that if belief and faith was not necessary, then I would go to, down to Bondi Beach every weekend and I would just swim by people and push them. Well, I'd walk by people because I'm not a great swimmer, so who's kidding? But I would walk by people and push them under the water and say, in Jesus' name, in Jesus, and they're all going to heaven. No, you have to have faith. You have to have belief. <laughs> The music team in the WhatsApp group were talking about a drive-through baptism uh, because of the flooding that was taking place in Lakimba, and we just pull them out of the car and throw them in the water. And take them. No, you have to have belief. You have to have faith in Jesus for anything to take place when you are baptized. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift from God. By grace are you saved through faith. The grace of God works through faith. Amen. The faith that you have in Jesus. 
We see an express example of this in Acts 8, where Philip is teaching a Bible study to the Ethiopian eunuch, and they pass by a body of water. And the eunuch asked Philip in Acts chapter 8 to baptize him. Philip first clarifies that he must believe with all his heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when Philip understands that he has clarified this, that he has confirmed this, the eunuch has confirmed his belief in Jesus, then Philip immediately baptizes him. So you see that faith and belief are necessary for you to be baptized. You have to understand what you are doing. Repentance and faith is required for baptism to have its intended effect in the believer. And that's why, as pastor said, we don't baptize infants in this church or we don't baptize for the dead because your belief is not enough to save someone. Your belief, your faith in Jesus is not enough to help somebody, but they have to make that decision for themselves with a repentant heart. Not only did Peter declare that baptism was for everyone on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, but that it must be done in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or removal of sins. He declared that baptism must take place in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Every example of baptism in the book of Acts, which is a documented history of the beginning of the church, shows that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. In fact, when the gospel is received by a cultural group for the first time in Acts, every time, baptism in the name of Jesus is expressly mentioned. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, you'll notice that the Bible basically describes all of humanity as three separate groups of people. If you, if you read through the Bible, you'll see this time and time again. Yes, there's names for, for different clans and groups, but broadly, there are three groups of people in the Bible. There are Jews, which are God's chosen people. There are Gentiles, everyone who is a non-Jew. And then there are Samaritans or Jews mixed with Gentiles. In Acts chapter 2, the gospel is shared with the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and Peter preached baptism in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel is shared in Samaria to Samaritans. And in verse 16, it says that they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And in Acts 10, when the gospel is finally received by the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit is poured out on them like the Jews in Acts 2, Peter ordered them in verse 48 to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time it is in the name of Jesus because as Peter declared in Acts 4, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. The name of Jesus. As I hurry to a close, if I could please get the musicians to come. It is in baptism that the sins we have repented of are washed away. Listen to this powerful description of what true baptism means to the believer in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2. The Bible reads, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, 
having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers in authority, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You see, those sins that had weighed you down, those sins that have been plaguing, plaguing you, those thin, sins that have been weighing you down, when you come up out of the waters of baptism, those sins are no more attached to your life. Jesus has canceled them out. Jesus has forgiven them. That is true cancel culture, right? We've been hearing all about cancel culture, people being canceled here and canceled there. Well, who wants to be part of cancel culture today? Having your sins canceled in the name of Jesus Christ, never to be remembered again. No, that doesn't mean that we don't suffer the effects of our sins, the decisions that we have made over time. It doesn't mean everything is rosy and perfect after that moment. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that guilt and that shame is removed from your life and you have become a new creature in Christ. You have began a new life in Him. Your life has changed forever. He nailed them to the cross, hallelujah. If you could be upstanding as I come to a close thank you for your attention this morning. Peter wraps up his message on the day of Pentecost by saying, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. You see, that means that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for you, and it is for me. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for you, and it is for me. It is for our children. It is for our family. It is for our neighbors. It is for our community. It is for our city. It is for our nation. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for everybody. Hallelujah. And I want to tell somebody that you can receive it today. You can have that moment this morning that changes your entire destiny, that changes your entire life. You can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost this morning. You can repent of your sins and make that decision that I'm going to change, that I'm going to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Just come in faith believing. Hallelujah. If you found yourself at the POS this morning, this morning, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter what you have done, what has even taken place this morning. God has given you a word this morning that today it can change. Jesus is reaching out to you today. The Holy Spirit is reaching out to you this morning. You can repent of your sins. You can make the decision to be baptized in the name of Jesus. You can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's up to you to make that decision. It's up to you to decide that you want to experience the grace of God here today. Paul declared to not take the grace of God in vain because today 
is the day of salvation. Don't put it off for another day, but listen to the words of this preacher here today. Respond to the word of the Lord here this morning and experience salvation for yourself here today. Hallelujah. These altars are open if you'd like to come. If you'd like to come and repent, make that decision to change. It doesn't matter if you've been serving God for many years, you can repent and change today. If you want to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we'd love to pray with you here this morning. If you'd like to make a decision to be baptized, there are a few that have already decided to be baptized this morning. God will make the difference in your situation here today. Today is the day of salvation. As the singers and musicians are beginning to play, what you heard today, it will not profit you anything unless you respond in faith. And as they're praying and are going to lead us in worship, it's your opportunity to respond as we have heard so powerfully today. One decision can change your life and transform you. At the moment of repentance, God can pour out His anointing and His Spirit upon your life. And so why don't you take this time right now over the next few minutes, if you want to step out from your seat and come to this altar, you're free to do so. We want to seek the Lord together, shall we? Let us pray and seek Him in Jesus' name. Yeah. 